Hey guys, this is the Real Life Monopoly Podcast. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my partners and brothers, Kenneth and Kerwin Donis. We are real estate investors, and the point of our podcast is to help you reach your financial goals, which will allow you to have time to focus on your true passion so that you can live not only a happier, but more fulfilled life. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to today's show. Today we'll be having Axel Ragnarsson. Axel is the host of the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. Axel currently has 61 units. Axel explains how he was able to get his first multifamily property while he was in college and how he's continuing to build his portfolio. He was an awesome guest, and I hope you guys enjoy the show. Thank you for tuning in to the Real Estate Monopoly Podcast. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my two brothers, Kerwin and Kenneth. Today on the show, we'll be having Axel Ragnarsson. Axel, do you mind introducing yourself to the audience? First of all, appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to our conversation here over the next 30, 40 minutes. Um, you know, the quick backstory on me is I got into real estate five or so years ago um, while I was still in college. Uh, so I was a junior in college and I was, you know, buying and selling a bunch of stuff online and, and making money doing that, trying to figure out what to do next uh, in terms of some kind of entrepreneurial venture and stumbled on real estate, needless to say. And I wanted to get into flipping houses and flipping real estate, but what I ended up finding was that didn't really align with with what I was hoping to get out of it too much. Um, and, and in terms of you're basically, you know, it's a job, it's a, it's an intensive job and there's a lot of moving parts. And at the time, I just didn't have time to kind of manage a, a, a project like that while I was still in school. So ended up discovering rental real estate and specifically small multifamily. So two to four unit, you know, multifamily, uh, you know, that segment of the real estate business. And started figuring out how I could buy a deal and, and start building some passive income. And, you know, my goal at the time was if I could just buy a few of these, you know, for the next four or five years, um, you know, my rent will be paid, my bills will be paid, and, and that'll be pretty good. And, you know, fast forward really three years since when I got started, I, I went full time. I, you know, I had graduated. I had worked for an agent for a period of time or as an agent for a period of time and ended up, you know, kind of quitting that and going all in on the investing business two, two and a half years ago. And, um, I've bought a good amount of deals since then and, and built a, a nice portfolio of multifamilies, most of which I personally own, which has been great. And doing some other things now, too, in terms of going out of state to buy deals, um, you know, start a property management company to manage my own portfolio and to do third party management as well. And yeah, I think that's the, the, the spark notes of it, maybe as quick as I can make it, but happy to dive into any piece of that story. Sure, that's to, awesome. uh, to go back into, you said that you graduated college, you became an agent. And then you eventually got into investing. Do you mind walking us through the process from you being an agent and versus uh, going into investing? That's kind of a big leap for a lot of people that, uh, well, you know, not everyone is actually something that they eventually do. Do you mind walking us through that and, and how your mindset has Sure. So, you know, the reason I got my real estate license was I was in school and I just had, you know, I was going to school in New Hampshire, um, you know, Northeast, right? <laughs> For those who don't know where New Hampshire is, but um, it's really easy to get your real estate license up there. It's just 40 hours of classes and then take a test. So one summer, you know, before my junior year, so between my sophomore and junior year of college, I, I just took it throughout, you know, over the course of a month. And I just had my license because I was like, you know, maybe I'll learn about real estate in the interim. It costs 300 bucks to do it. Why not just get it? So I just had it and I figured, you know, while I'm looking for my own deals and trying to, you know, buy my own property and build my own portfolio, um, why don't I just work with buyers and sellers so I can kind of retain that schedule freedom and, and stay within real estate and I can continue learning real estate in terms of the transactional process and, and all that fun stuff. So for me, it was I never really wanted to work like as an agent. It was more or less just something I backed into because 
at the time I just got my license because I didn't really know what else to do to learn real estate. So when I graduated, I had, um, I had already, I think I had three buildings at the time, which was eight units. It was a couple of threes and a, and a, and a duplex. And I was self-managing them. And I said, you know, this can kind of pay my, you know, my post-college rent a little bit here. And, and I can go out and broker a few deals, make some money and keep looking for deals. And that was really the motivation. So for me, it was never, I want to go out there and build a, an agent business or a broker brokerage business of some kind. It was, if I can make a check here and there and, um, and I can buy food with the agent business and go out there and buy deals um, while still staying active in real estate, you know, great. That, that was my, that was my goal at least. Awesome. And um, you did mention that one of the big motivators for you was the passive income that real estate could provide. I would love it if you could expand for our audience. Um, what has passive income done for you and why is real estate a really great way to get that passive income over, let's say other types of investments? Sure. So I think passive income is one of those, uh, it's like a buzzword, right? I mean, every, if you go on Instagram, you're going to get so many Instagram ads about, you know, passive income build, you know, passive income is what you got to strive for. And it's some guy selling a Shopify store, some guy talking about Amazon automation or, or, you know, some guy talking about starting a blog and doing affiliate marketing or whatever. Um, there's a number of ways to, to, to achieve passive income, but one of the easiest ways to do so outside of like investing in stocks, which is, you know, you're really not going to make much in terms of dividends, right? So we'll put that aside, but one of the easiest ways to do that is to just buy rental property. And that's really scalable as well. Um, in terms of, you can hire a property manager, you know, once you buy the deal and close on it, it isn't going to require much of your time, you know, especially on these smaller deals, these small multifamily properties. You know, I, even when I was self-managing, I wasn't spending that much time, but once I hired a property manager, it was, you know, two, three hours a month, just speaking with the property manager in terms of my time commitment. So the goal for me in terms of how it, you know, kind of changed my life um, or, or how it really set up my business was, you know, I was a year out of school and, and I, you know, I was maybe making 17, 1800 bucks a month in passive income um, in terms of just cash flow for my rentals, which was paying my rent. It was paying my, you know, my car payment. It was paying my insurance. And, and that was great. Right. So when I was working as an agent and I'd make a four or $5,000 check on a, on a transaction that I could, you know, really kind of, I could bank all that money. And, and, you know, when you're young and you're early twenties, you're not really spending that much, even if you're, you know, going out and, still, you know, having a great time. It's not like your expenses are really that high. It's not like you have a family, right? So for me, I got to save a lot of that money and it gave me schedule freedom, which, you know, just another fancy way of saying I could do what I wanted when I wanted. And, and that for me, what meant that I could, you know, I could continue looking for deals. Um, I could pursue other business interests, you know, which I, I didn't end up doing, but that was something that I could do. Um, and even just that first deal I did, it was a it was a three in a deal that I found on Craigslist, and I you know used private money to buy to buy the deal, and it was you know pretty minimal cash in my own pocket. I was still making six six hundred fifty bucks a month off that, and you know twenty one. I was like, if I can make seventy two hundred bucks a year in perpetuity from this deal, I mean that's like game changing. If I get ten of these now, making seventy two grand a year, right? So it was. It, you know, it kind of laid the foundation for what I wanted the business to look like. And and I just, you know, got my mind, I reverse engineered, I need this amount of units, which at the time was 25 units is going to give me, you know, 35, 40 grand a year. And that's a, you know, that's a $50,000 salary after taxes, right? So that's me getting a $50,000 job. Um, that's the income I'd be making in perpetuity. And, and that was like my goal initially. But to answer your question, I guess, more specifically, it was, it really just gave me the freedom to go out and actually pursue uh, just anything that I really wanted to do, which at the time was brokering deals and looking for, for real estate deals in general. Awesome. And you said that your first deal you got in college, is that right? 
So yes. is that like a mindset that you already had in college, knowing that passive income was the goal? And do you mind kind of going into how you developed that? Because I know a lot of my friends, and, and we're, we're listening. I'm, I was a college student last year. My brother's also currently a college student. So I know a lot of our friends currently did not have that mindset. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I think that it's it could be tougher to answer, right? Because you're like, sometimes, and I, you know, you guys are probably like this too, right? Where this is just what you want to do. And, and <laughs> like, I don't know how I really got here. I just you know, eventually you're like, this is just what I want to do. Right. So for me, I think, um, I was 19 when I had, you know, so what I was doing was I was buying and selling cars. That was kind of my, that was my saddle. So that's how I was making money. So I was buying cars on Craigslist, you know, buy it for five grand, sell it for 6,500 bucks, you know, make, make some good money. And so I, I was making money doing that. And I was, you know, I had money in the bank. It wasn't, you know, I didn't get into real estate with truly like no money. Right. I, I had some money and, um, so for me, I was like, if I can do that, you know, I could probably do something bigger. It's just a function of, of how do you do it? You know? So I'm a big, like, um, you know, I can't do that. Like, instead of saying, I can't do that. It's like, how can I do that? You know, that's just like a big question. I love to ask myself is like how, rather than, than anything else really. So for me, you know, the idea of buying a property in college is just not something that enters anyone's minds usually. Right. Um, but for me, I was like, it's pretty achievable if I can find a deal and I can find someone to lend me the money. Like, you know, I, I've, I've spent two years educating myself, right? Because I found real estate when I was 19. I, I didn't buy a deal until I was 21. So I'd listened to a thousand hours of podcasts at that point, right? So I was like, I feel like I know how to do this. It's just a function of, can I find the deal? And can I find someone to lend me the money? And that's really what it just boiled down to. So it wasn't like I kind of woke up one day and said, you know, I want to go buy real estate. Like I didn't have any family members that owned rental real estate. Like, I, you know, I didn't come from that. So for me, it was there are other people doing this. Like there are other college kids buying, buying property. Right. I mean, it's the playbooks there. It's just, how do you go out and execute it? Do you mind kind of going into your first deal and walking us through how you found it, what the business plan was and how that's doing that? Sure. So uh, the first one's a pretty funny one, I guess. Um, so I, I, I grew up in this very small town called Chester, New Hampshire, which is like population 5,000. Like it's a really small town. And um, when I started looking for deals, I was looking in the biggest city in New Hampshire. It's a city called Manchester, 120,000 people. Again, it's just not a big city and it's a small state, right? So um, really what I was doing was I was I was just browsing Craigslist like for sale by owners. I was doing like the Zillow for sale by owners. I was doing like a little bit of prospecting, you know, kind of, you know, I would buy a data list and I'd text the owners and, you know, just ask them if they wanted to sell. Just kind of throwing crap against the wall is really what I was doing. And I just happened to get lucky and find a um, a three unit deal on Craigslist that was a for sale by owner that was listed in Chester, New Hampshire. So it just was a town that I knew like the back of my hand. And um, it turned out it was a property I'd driven by probably a thousand times in my life. Like I just knew that property, that area so well. So, you know, this is after looking for deals for like six months. You know, this wasn't like I just woke up and found it. And he was asking for 200 grand. Um, which on paper made a ton of sense. Like the gross rents were, I think it was like three grand a month. I could get them to you know, maybe 30, 400 bucks a month. So, you know, it was a really good deal. And it just was something that I was like, this is a great like first deal because it's kind of, there's already some good income. It's not like it's a major rehab. I didn't want to do any major rehabs and I don't think anyone should do a major rehab for their first deal. I think that's suicide. Um, so I was like, I can just keep the tenants, you know, when they leave, I'll raise the rents a little bit. It's, it's pretty simple. So, um, basically made the guy an offer for, for 190 and, you know, we went back and forth and 195 is what I had it under contract for. And, um, I thought it was worth 275 all day long. I was like, this is a $275,000 property. And all of the comparable sales said it was worth even more than that. So 
I bought the deal with private money. So there was no appraisal as part of this process. And I, I met my private lender through an internship I had who I built a relationship with over like a year. And, you know, I, I would I'd let him know this is what I wanted to do. I said, hey, if I can bring you a deal with these numbers, is this something that you'd be interested in lending on? And kind of got some verbal commitments from him along the way. So I took it to him. He gave me a loan of, um, I think it was 175. So it was, it was like just about 90% like loan to value. And I think I borrowed a few grand from a family member and I put every other dime I had into the deal. So I was like all in and which again, probably shouldn't do right. You need some money in the bank before you buy a rental property. But you know, I was like, I just want to get into something. So what ended up happening was, is I, I owned that for, uh, and the plan was I was going to go out and refinance with like a commercial loan and, and, um, and do that. Well, what ended up happening was I was having trouble getting, getting a loan to go and refinance. Cause I didn't have a W2 income. I was in college, you know, my tax returns sucked. And even though I was going for a commercial loan, which, you know, is different than the 30 year fixed rate residential. I mean, they're, they're loaning based on the property, um, <clears throat> excuse me, rather than the borrower, I was still having a tough time because <laughs> like I just had no experience. So I was like, eh, you know, this has been great. I've, I've kind of collected some cash flow, even, even while paying the private money interest. And um, I think I'm just going to go ahead and sell it. So I had it for about a year, year and a half. And um, I put it on the market to sell. And I, I got no, like I got no interest. And um, it didn't really go that well. I had it listed at 275. I was, you know, selling it myself to save a commission and doing tons and tons of showings. But the issue that I found um, that I didn't catch on my inspection on the front end was that um, it was a dug well and it was a septic tank. And the dug well was too close to the septic tank. And, you know, basically what that long story short, it wouldn't qualify for any residential financing. So nobody could house hack it, you know, move in. And that cuts out a ton of the buyers for that type of property. And it's and it, you know, that problem, even though it wouldn't kind of disqualify commercial financing, it just kind of turned a lot of people off. So I ended up selling it for way less than I thought. I think I sold it for like 230 or something, which you know, great. Right. But after I paid the buyer's commission and everything, I walked away with like 10 grand and it was awesome, but it wasn't like a, you know, a home run deal by any means. But, um, but it needless to say, just doing it right. Got me in the game. And I did a couple of the deals before I sold that one. So, you know, that was kind of full cycle on that, you know, lesson learned, right. Is to understand what your exit is and to make sure that it's financeable, obviously when you go to sell. So since then I've just never bought a property with a septic or a well, I've just done everything city water, city sewer. And, um, you know, I think it, so needless to say, a good deal. Um, and it was a nice, easy one to kind of start out with. Yeah, that's awesome. And I kind of want to touch on that. So um, it's really cool, you know, that you pretty much bought this property. Um, I would say it's pretty successful that, you know, you were able to maintain it for a year, uh, you know, get some cash flow. And then it were able to sell it, although you didn't sell it for what you thought you were going to sell it for, you still made a profit. Um, but what kind of transition or what got you into doing bigger deals and how does that compare to smaller deals? Yeah. So the bigger deals for me at the time were like just doing anything that was five plus. Right. So yeah. I started doing some six unit deals and eight unit deals. And, you know, for me, that was bigger because, you know, just a bigger purchase price and it's technically commercial rather than residential multifamily. So the, the key difference there is really just the financing of it. If you're talking about the actual, structure of the deal and, and not just like, you know, the mindset of it all. The mindset for me was I'd rather just do bigger deals because I can't get residential financing anyways, which is the biggest benefit of doing two to four unit deals is you can get the 30 year fixed rate, um, you know, great financing. 
I, I couldn't get it because I just was too young. I had bad tax returns. I didn't have a W-2. So I was like, if I'm going to get this 25, you know, or the, the 75% loan to value 25 year AM on my small deals, I might as well just go do the big deals where that's the only thing you can get. So that was kind of what, what drew me to those. So I started doing, you know, a lot of six units, you know, some eight units. Um, really the last, the last year has been when I've really decided to scale a little bit. And that was a function of me just trying to get out of my own way and bring in partners and, and capital partners to help me with it instead of just trying to do everything myself. So really what I ended up doing was, is, you know, I did a lot of those kind of still smaller multifamily, you know, the sub 10 unit multifamily. And I, I built a portfolio of 45, 50 units or so of just, you know, my own deals. And I got to the point where I was like, it's going to take me a while to get to 100 units, 150 units, 200 units just by myself. Like I need to bring in some partners. So that's where really where it is now. Um, and so the biggest hurdle for me was getting over that, you know, just needing to do it myself and understanding that I can bring other people in and we can all just share in a, a larger pie. So that's where I'm at really at, at like at this moment is really where I'm starting to put that into action. So, you know, at the end of the last year, I closed a 24 unit portfolio, which was just me. That was, you know, all my money, all it just, I raised all of it in terms of, you know, private debt. So I retained control and I was like, that's the last deal I do of this size where it's just me. So I'm going to start, you know, working with partners. So, you know, we're closing on a, me and a couple of partners are closing on a 16 unit uh, down in Lakeland, Florida, the end of the month. Um, we're going to be putting another 28 units under contract, probably right after we get off this phone call, we're just about to sign the purchase and sale. Um, probably going to be putting a, you know, 28 units in, in Arkansas under contract. And those are all partnership deals where somebody brings the, the deal, you know, I have a, you know, balance sheet and I can help sign on the loan and I can help turn it around and execute. So that's the value I bring. And, and that's just a much easier way to scale and get more doors. Something that as you get bigger, you, you really do want to build a team around you of partners that uh, can bring different types of value to the table. How did you go about finding those partners? I know a lot of people that are really new to this space. That's the first thing they kind of, if you don't really have a track record, you have no experience, you want to find someone that's doing it. So how did you go about finding those partners that have helped you get those deals that you have currently on the contract? And not only that, but it's also like a lot of times people will find partners, but they're not good. So how did you find good partners? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, it's all networking really at the end of the day. And that's an easy answer. And everyone knows that. But it's it's like networking with some level of intentionality. You know, if you can just go to a real estate meetup and shake hands and tell people what you do and then leave. Right. And get nothing out of it other than, a, you know, a business card. But for me, when I was like, all right, I want to start doing multifamily deals out of state, you know, in these markets how, what, what value am I bringing to a partner in this scenario? And how do I go out and find the individuals that have the other side of this? So for me, it was very specific. You know, I wanted to do midsize, you know, small to midsize multifamily, you know, 16 to 60 unit deals. And, you know, I said, I, I have some money. I have people with money. I, you know, have some level of expertise on how to turn these deals around, how to finance them, how to put them together. So if I can find people in these markets who are a local, who have deal flow, who are, can physically be at the property, you know, every couple of months meeting with the property managers and doing some level of asset management, you know, if they can find a deal, I'll compensate them for that. You know, you find the deal, I'll give you equity, I'll bring the money. We can create a win-win scenario for everybody involved. And we can both just do something that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. So I was very specific about finding people who kind of fit that avatar. So, you know, the way in which I did that was I joined a lot of you know, networking groups out of state um, in terms of that were local to these markets that I was looking in. 
and, and all this stuff can be applied to your local market too. That for me, this just happened to be I was doing this out of state. But you know, if you want to do this locally, same thing. You know, you just do it locally. But um, you know, one of the groups I joined, it's you know, it was a it's a mastermind, you know, group, I guess is the easiest way to put it. Basically, it's like a paid networking group, a couple hundred bucks a month. You get in and you can meet people around the country doing deals. And that's how I met these guys in in uh, in Tampa, who, you know, which is the market that's right next to Lakeland. So I met these guys in Tampa who were doing deals in Lakeland. Um, I met, you know, the boots on the ground partner in Arkansas who were, you know, we that deal hasn't gone under contract yet. It probably will. And we're working on that. But if we don't do this one, we'll do another deal together of some kind. And basically, you know, to answer your, your question, Kerwin, in terms of how do we know that these guys are good? <laughs> um, for me, it's like, do you have a track record? Um, are you reasonable in terms of your expectations within a partnership? And, and you know, are you just someone that I can see myself enjoying working with? And obviously, you do all the smart stuff in terms of setting up really straightforward operating agreements. You set expectations up front in terms of who's responsible for what, you know, how people are being compensated what you want, you know, what the strategy for the deal is so that, you know, you're trying to have that conversation up front. So there's no surprises, you know, as you're in the deal. But um, for me, these guys in Tampa, they already own property. They already have some level of success. You know, they don't necessarily need me and I don't necessarily need them. However, there's a lot of upside in us working together. So that's why it makes sense. And then my partner, potential partner here in Arkansas, that's the same thing. He's, you know, he's got a single family wholesaling background. He already owns some small multifamily um, you know, he's, I, I think he's a stand-up guy, you know, and who knows, right? You could work with someone for a few years and find out that it doesn't work. So <laughs> time will tell on those. But um, but we have these conversations up front. We almost over-communicate up front in terms of this is what we want this deal to look like. This is, you know, this is exactly what our strategy is. And let's make sure that we're all completely on board with the plan and that we all completely understand what our what our expectations are for each other and what our roles are. That's exactly what, uh, luckily we, uh, I work with my brothers, but he also joined the mastermind group and we've been networking with a lot of people there. And then like you said, um, it really just comes down to if it's something that's going to fit and it really just get like a, a, a feel for it when you're on the phone with them, kind of hear what they've done, how they communicate with you. It's just, you kind of get a feel for it at first. And um, of course you have to kind of experience it to really know how, how good they're going to be and if they're going to be a good partnership. But you can obviously get like a, you can get like a sense of how well you guys would work together. Uh, and to go into my next question, yeah, I was, yeah. Um, that's something that we've heard a lot of other people say as well, over-communicating, um, because a lot of people, the, the reason that problems occur is that they don't communicate enough, um, and that can occur not just between partners, but also between the limited partners and the general partners, um, and that's something that a lot of our guests have, have emphasized, is communication. Yeah, yeah. so true. I, actually, I kind of want to ask you, uh, starting out in, in multifamily, what was something that you thought would be easier than it was, and then to go on that as well? What was something that you, you found out was harder than you actually thought it would be? If that makes sense. No, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think that the real gut reaction to that uh, is property management. I thought that was going to be easier than it was. Um, and I figured that I was going to self-manage. Like, I just I just thought that's what I was going to do. And, and if I hired a third-party manager, I'd do so when I had 20, 30, 40 units or something like that. I hired, I hired a third-party management when I had eight. You know, I got out of that quick. And um, it just it just wasn't for me. Like I just sucked at it too, and that was really just the reality. It was like, you know, I, I didn't have the emotional intelligence at the time to not get invested in all of the tenants' problems and to not get completely dragged down, just and stressed out and, and involved in property management. So 
I, I didn't, I made less money early because I, because I just didn't get that off my plate, you know, charged less in rent, took too long to evict, um, you know, just gave tenants whatever they wanted in terms of repairs and all that stuff. So I thought that would be easier. It wasn't. So that's something where I, I just would have used third party like day one. Um, and I, it's funny because I think people are like, you know, you got to do it yourself to understand, you know, how you can identify. No, <laughs> you don't. Right. Because if you're doing it yourself, you, you don't know what you're doing. Like, like you don't know how to even tell what success looks like in that role. I thought I did until I gave it to somebody else. And I was like, oh, so this is what the, this is how <laughs> property management actually looks. I was doing a third of this. So I think that's probably the first thing in terms of what I thought would be easier. As for what ended up being harder, I guess, was the quick thing is financing, right? Because even if you get private money to get into real estate, to a real estate deal, especially people who are young and maybe don't have a high paying job, like you have to understand, you have to really understand how lending works at its fundamental level. Um, you know, so for me, I was so concerned with putting not that much money down because I didn't have that much money and just getting into a deal that I didn't understand what it looked like on the back end. And um, I think that whether I'm, you know, whether that was a three unit deal or a 30 unit deal, you know, that would have been something that I that I ran into because I just wasn't putting, I was spending all my time trying to figure out the deal and how to find the deal and not much to, you know, not much time trying to figure out how, what, what I actually need to have, you know, as a borrower in order to get a, you know, qualified for financing and what lenders are actually looking for. So I think that happens in multifamily too, when people start to scale, they're so worried about finding that 50 unit deal that's, you know, round numbers, 5 million bucks and the loan, the loan amounts 3.75. Like, and they don't understand that you need collectively people with a net worth of $3.75 million to sign on that debt. Like that's a, you got to figure that out, right? I mean, if you don't have that figured out, you're, you're, there's no point in looking for a deal because you can't close it. Like you can't even start that process. So understand, we, everyone gets so caught up in the deal, I guess is what I'm saying, that we forget that there's all of these other moving parts that need to come together to close something. So I probably would have spent a little bit more time getting my own finances figured out and trying to figure out a plan to actually qualify, get financing. I would maybe would have found a partner, a co-signer to help me, you know, initially on those first few deals, get better lending terms or, um, you know, even just get uh, like long-term residential financing rather than those commercial loans that I, that I got on all my early deals, you know, all my two to four units. And um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> Hopefully it does, but I think that's probably what I'd put more that attention to. That was a pretty to. good answer to the question, honestly. But I did kind of want to touch. So our, our audience is really, it's kind of a younger audience. Um, we do have some younger people that, you know, might listen to us. Um, and you're pretty young yourself. So I was just curious, uh, you know, if you, knowing what you know now, what kind of advice would you give to your 20-year-old self as far as multifamily and real estate uh, and, and maybe even life in general? Yeah, I mean, that's a big one, huh? I think I'd, I'd probably just tell myself to focus more. And um, it, this is, everyone always says this, right? It's so funny. You hear a lot of the same stuff on podcasts. And I bet you ask enough people this question, a lot of them would say, you know, <laughs> narrow down and focus. But uh, when I was starting, I was, I was, I knew I kind of wanted to do rental real estate, but I'd also listen to pod, I'd listen to like the Bigger Pockets podcast. And somebody would talk about how they were killing it, you know, wholesaling deals. And another person would talk about how they were killing it doing short term rentals. And another person would talk about how, you know, they were doing large multi fit, I don't know, whatever, some other strategy. And uh, I just start chasing a bunch of different things, right? Where I was like, you know, I, I, I do, I know that I want to get into rental real estate. And, and that was always in the back of my head. But I'd also start thinking about like, look, you know, our Airbnb is a cool model that might give me more cash flow. 
initially. And, um, you know, I think that I could hustle and, and wholesale deals. And I, you know, tried to do that for a bit. And, you know, I just kind of spread myself really thin. I think if I had just been like multifamily real estate, I'm going to send 500 mailers a month. I'm going to cold call a hundred people, you know, a list of a hundred people that I really want to talk to. And I'm going to, you know, set up these searches on the MLS and Craigslist. And I'm going to check them every week. I got my financing figured out and I'm just going to go all in on finding these deals and I'm not going to get distracted by house flipping, wholesaling, short-term rental stuff and and just did that. I probably would have done more deals and I would have learned faster. So I think that would probably be the answer to that. Um, and, you know, and I, and I think too, even after I had done a few small multi deals, I was still trying to flip houses. Like that was still something that was there because I had some wholesaler connections and um, you know, and I, and I got a you know single family deal here and there. And I was just, by way of networking, you know, people had a deal and I'd, you know, buy it and I'd fix it up and made money on some, but I lost money on a few others because I just wasn't focused on it. Like it was just something that I was doing on the side and I didn't, you know, you got to be all in on, on what you're doing in real estate to excel at it. You can't just dabble. So I was dabbling in a lot of ways and, uh, you know, it kind of hurt my growth initially. So I, I think, I think the best piece of advice that I'd give myself is just focus and get serious about one thing. That's awesome. And I definitely agree. That's something that we kind of had to choose between single family since we come from wholesaling. Uh, we just decided rather than trying to do both commercial real estate, multifamily uh, specifically and wholesaling, um, we were also doing creative financing. Just being in that realm, we really wanted to hone in on one thing and our ultimate goal was always passive income and multifamily was the fastest way to do that. So we just decided to go for it and kind of just drop single family. But uh, to kind of go into my next question, um, so I, I was on a podcast that I was listening to you on, and uh, it was really like, I think it was one where you were pretty much going solo, and you kind of just walked through how you build a relationship with the seller um, on an off-market deal. Do you mind going into that? That is something that we obviously did when we were wholesaling, but it's not something that we have been able to do in this space. We just found that reaching out to brokers is the best way for us to, reach, to find deals and generate the, that, um, that deal flow. Do you mind going into how to best generate a relationship with the seller and how you go about doing that? Sure. So specific to multifamily, building a relationship when you're going direct to seller is much different than doing so on the single family side because single family deals are emotional and there's and there's more there's more external factors that are driving somebody to sell, you know, divorce, death, um, relocation, all those other things, right? That you know, people need to sell. And that's more transactional. Um, and multifamily, people don't really have to sell. They don't have to sell to you. They're probably smart enough to know that they should list with a broker. Um, and that's just the reality of what it is. So for me, when I was doing, because pretty much every deal I've done has been direct to seller. And the way that I've you know jumped in front of the brokers on a lot of these deals, because the sellers are wealthy, they don't need to sell, um, is just by being friendly, right? And, and not asking to buy their property, which sounds so counterintuitive. So all the direct to seller prospecting I did was, you know, some version of, hey, you know, I own property in Manchester. You know, I see that you own this property and, you know, me and my partners are looking to continue buying. If you ever thought about selling, that's great. You know, if not, I'd love to grab coffee with you and learn about your, your experience in real estate and get to know another investor that's doing deals in the market. So, you know, I don't I'm not asking them to sell their property. I'm not telling that I can buy cash and close in 14 days and, you know, I can I don't care if it needs repairs. I did that early and I realized that wasn't really how you actually get deals. It's by just getting to know other investors. And then you kind of stay in their ear and bug them over time about selling. Say, you know, hey, Paul, if you're just letting you know, right, hope that uh, hope that everything goes, you know, is going well at 18 Brook Street. If, if you thought about selling that, you know, I'm still here. Um, how's the family? Right. Like stuff like that. You know, so it's 
a lot of the deals that I've done have come from, I reach out to someone, we stay in touch for months on end, and then they end up selling. And, you know, I think the podcast that you're specifically referring to is the is the 24 unit portfolio that I bought at the end of 2020, where I literally spoke with this guy for six months, probably once a month for like two hours, he was an older guy, and he just wanted to talk, right. And I just, you know, just let him talk. And we just we became buddies, <laughs> really is what it was over, over those six months. And when it came, when it came time to sell, he was still going to go with a broker. Like I, it's not like I won that deal, but I basically told him, I said, um, you know, if you have any problems, like with the current state of the property, let's figure out a situation in which I can make this, you know, better for you. And what ended up happening was uh, that that relationship at least gave me the opportunity to have that conversation and to solve his problems. And he was actually having some problems with his property manager, and uh, and therefore you was having some tenant problems and. My solution to that deal, which is pretty out of the ordinary, was I actually property managed his buildings while we were under contract to sell because his manager was was essentially stealing from him. So at the time I said, you know, hey, that's a pretty serious problem. I You can go get more if you list this. I'm sure that a broker is going to tell you you can list this and get much more. However, you know, I understand that you would probably rather not deal with this guy while you're going through that transactional process and doing this sell to me for this price, right? Which is, I, I literally told him, I said, it's going to be less than what you get on the market. However, I'll take this property management problem completely off your hands. And if you sign a contract tomorrow, you literally don't need to deal with this anymore. And, I, and that was worth tens and tens of thousands of dollars to him. So, um, so it, I just happened to be, you know, someone that he trusted to do that because we had a relationship for so long. And obviously, I mean, I stepped up and like gave him a pretty big solution to a problem. So, if it wasn't for me staying in touch, I, I never would have had the chance to even have that conversation with him, right? So that's that's the key takeaway is you got to become friends with the owners. You got to build relationships, not to buy their property, just to network. And eventually, you know, if there's someone that's interested in doing something off market, you'll be someone they call. Sure, that's one of the main uh, mind shifts that I, I feel like when you come into this space is you have to actually nurture those uh, relationships. It's not really like single family where a lot of people are looking for those hot deals and, and that might happen every now and then, but I've really never heard of that happening in a multifamily off-market off deal. And like you said, you're really just trying to become a friend. Um, and it's something that, that sounds like it's, it's not impossible, you know, like you really just have to uh, be intentional about it. So and that's awesome. And you said that it's something that you do for every deal. Like you don't even uh, reach out to brokers really, or are you really just off-market? No. So, I, I mean, I have done a couple of deals through brokers, you know, we're, 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 we're finishing this uh, purchase and sale. The 28 unit in, in Lakeland is through a broker. And that was an off-market, you know, broker deal. Uh, and, you know, I think if you want to get to that size, if you want to consistently do 30, 40, 50 plus, especially when you get to 100 plus, you're just not, you're not going to go direct to seller for those deals. It's all brokerage or, or broker deals, you know? So I think that if you want to do the five to 30 unit, you know, you'll find some success going direct to seller, especially in smaller markets that are, less sophisticated for lack of a better way to put it. So for those deals, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I just haven't found those deals through brokers because historically I just haven't been willing to pay what, you know, the market's been willing to pay. And I've just been able to generate enough deals off market to stay busy, but for the big stuff, for sure, you got to go to brokers. I mean, especially once you get to, you know, 80 plus year, you got on site, like those sellers, they just are not going to sell to you off market unless you're offering them a price that is market price because they know exactly what it's worth. They, they have brokers calling them every two, three months telling them we can list it for this, we can get you this. Like they know exactly what it's worth. So unless you're reaching out and giving them that number, 
it's not like you're going to be finding discounted deals, right? And I'm sure someone listening to this is like, well, you know, I did, right? <laughs> um, there's exceptions to every rule. You know, maybe the 1% of those transactions are actually direct to seller off market. Um, but I would say that those deals are probably happening in the Midwest, you know, in markets where there's like a little less scale sophistication, a little bit more mom and pop ownership. But, um, you know, for me, and I'm going to get sidetracked here for a second, but the best thing about going off market to these smaller deals, the five to 30 unit type deals, right? And that's just an arbitrary number, but that's what I'll use for sake of conversation is uh, you build a relationship with a seller and do one deal. If you execute on that and make him happy and, you know, you make it easy to work with you throughout the transaction, you don't do an, you know, like you don't do an inspection and go and renegotiate or you don't, you know, try and get in the units every week to walk a new contractor through and you just make it easy to work with you. Chances are they probably have other properties because most people that own some multifamily own multiple multifamily and they're probably going to come and sell to you on the other deals. Right. So it's there are so many deals I've done where I may have overpaid for the not overpaid in terms of paid more than market. But like, you know, I probably could have renegotiated a, a you know, a bit of an inspection problem on that first one. But I said, I'm not going to be short sighted. Like maybe I'll pay a little bit more for this deal in the grand scheme. But that's going to that's going to give me the, you know, the golden highway to the other deals. And that's like literally happened with like five sellers to where that first one, I don't, you know, complain about the the roof needing to be replaced. I say, you know what, I'll just replace the roof. I want to make this guy just love me so that when he wants to sell his next six unit, his next 10 unit, you know, I'm the first person he calls. And that has literally worked with multiple, multiple owners. And I think that's the benefit of being off market is that you can kind of develop repeat business relationships. Um, but I got yeah, sidetracked yeah. there. Needless to say, brokers still bring you deals. Um, especially the big ones. I mean, you got to build those relationships. Um, And to kind of go into our express round, it's pretty much where I'll uh, just ask you five questions. It's really simple. Um, First question, are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. What is the biggest mistake you've uh, made in real estate and what did it teach you? Uh, So I was flipping a house a couple of years into the business and I hired every wrong contractor I possibly ever could have hired. And this is is kind of my go-to answer for this because... um, you, when you're really early, you need to just overpay for quality people to help you. Really, I mean, you can't you can't penny pinch whether it's attorneys or agents, or you know, especially contractors because those are the really expensive mistakes. So I just used a guy that wasn't great, and and it was a flip that completely got away from me. You know, the entire first rehab was was done incorrectly, not to code. Told me he'll put he pulled permits. He didn't pull permits. I I literally had to do two separate rehabs on this property and ended up losing a ton of money. And um, it was like the most stressful time of my entire life. It was a nightmare. And it was all just because I picked a guy that was cheaper. <laughs> and, you know, so I think uh, when you're early, if you're doing big rehabs, overpay the right contractor. Don't don't try and penny pinch, you know, do that in time where you know what you're looking at, especially for the younger people out there who don't probably don't have construction experience or you don't have experience with what success looks like. You know, just pay the right people to do it the first time. Um, so for me, business related failure was working with the wrong contractors, wasting a ton of money, losing money instead of just ponying up and paying the right people. And I feel like every single real estate investor has had a bad contractor experience, so you're not alone. Uh, second question, what is yeah. your favorite book and you can tailor this towards personal life and business life? That's a good one. I think, um, you know, this is going to be a, this is going to be a yeah. zag, I think in terms of my answer, but, uh, I just read this book and it doesn't really have much personal um, application, but it has been a business book that's really, really changed how I've looked at marketing specifically. It's called uh, it's called the one page marketing plan. 
It's it's by a guy named Alan Alan Dib, I think. His first name's Alan. I don't I don't remember his last name, but um, it's basically the entire playbook on how to effectively market as a small business, and it's applicable to wholesalers, people going direct to seller, people just starting any you know any business, whether it's real estate or not real estate related. And it's a quick read. I read it in probably a few hours, and I was like, this completely changed how I'm approaching marketing in my business. And um, I don't know. It's it's tough, right? Because I, I think I could have a real estate book as an answer to that. But as I spend more time in real estate, I realize that the books that really help you grow your business are not real estate books. They're business books. Um, so I think that's just a recent one because it's one I read last week. But I was like, I shut that one. And I was like, I'm changing everything I'm doing. <laughs> so I guess uh, that'll, that, that's probably my answer for that one. Uh, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received or you would give out to someone? Ooh. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a really good question. I, I haven't really thought about this too much. Um, I forget where I heard this, but I, this is going to be so cliche. But it is, but it is pretty, it is pretty true. Um, I think it, I forget who said it, but someone said at some point, right? And I heard it, it's like you can have whatever you want, right? If you do whatever it takes, and whatever it takes is completely vague. <laughs> People don't know what that means. Um, but I think that, and I'm going to pair it with something else that compared with um, just being consistent. If you can do whatever it takes to be successful on a consistent basis, um, it's just going to supercharge your results, right? And, you know, for me, I think whatever it takes oftentimes for me means uh, just just staying just staying in it, right? Just, just plugging away at it every day. So I think if you know that whatever it's going to take you to grow your portfolio is going direct to seller um, and, and cold calling and doing direct mail, if you can do that, if you know that's what it takes, if you can do that and you can pair that with consistency over time, you're going to find results. Um, so I guess that's a bit, I'm giving you two answers more or less, but I think that if I can take that first quote and pair it with consistency, um, those are just two concepts that are that have really kind of driven what I've done. And, you know, I've done real estate every day for five years. Like I, I'm, I either learned something or done something that's either going to you know, get me a step ahead in my business, or it's going to introduce me to a piece of knowledge I didn't have that's going to help me in my business. And you just, that's just what you have to do, right? This isn't something that you can, you know, dabble in, especially if you want to grow like quickly and have this be something that replaces your income. You just have to do, you have to identify what it takes to get there. And you just have to consistently do it. That's awesome. I really 100% agree. And that's exactly what we do. Like every single day, we'll at least learn something or take some type of action. Um, so number four, my, my fourth question, what is a daily habit that you would accredit some of your success? Um, you know, that's another great question. I think I'd like, I wish I could say reading. I don't read enough. I should read more. Right. So I'm going to put that one aside, even though I do try and do my best. Um, this is weird. I just don't listen to much music. I literally listen to podcasts. Like, and I think that's really, really helped me get ahead. I, I love music. I'm a big music guy, but like if I'm in the car or I'm working out, like it's all podcasts. So I probably listen to two to three hours of podcasts a day like at a minimum. And some of them are entertainment, but you know, 70, 80% of them are educational. And it's not just real estate. I do. I listen to marketing podcasts. I listen to sales podcasts. I listen to, you know, I went down a rabbit hole for like a month where I was listening to like world economic change podcasts about interest rates and lending. And it, and it helped my real estate business help me look at it in a bit of a different way. Um, I'm just, I'm, I am pretty obsessed with just like learning more about my craft, right? Which is real estate and it's getting deals done and it's, you know, and all of the things that come with doing that. So for me, it's, I think music is like dessert oftentimes, right? Like if you're driving home and you throw music on, that's great, but that's time that you're, you could be leaving on the table to kind of learn some more. So 
at the expense of sounding like a total hardo, right? Like I don't listen to music, which I do, but um, it's, you know, I listen to something that's probably going to, that's probably going to give me, you know, some leg up in my business on a day to day basis. I've never heard of someone say it like that, uh, like easily like a dessert. I totally agree. Like we kind of do the same thing where um, we try not to listen to any music. I mean, obviously I love music, but podcasts is, or just listening to anything educational, all that time that you could be listening to something educational or just, pretty much not wasting it, but it's entertainment versus beneficial. And if you actually enjoy learning about it, it can actually work both ways, you know? So number five, what is the best way? Yeah. Exactly. I want to touch on that though also, because, um, you know, when, when you're listening to things, although like, like you said, when you're working out, you may not necessarily be focused because I do the same thing. When we work out, we always listen to podcasts, you know, real estate, your podcast, um, other podcasts, real estate, or just learning. Um, and we don't necessarily – always interact like sometimes i'll definitely tune in to it but subconsciously we're learning it and the subconscious mind is super powerful so just having that repetition of just always learning subconsciously uh is very very powerful and it definitely compounds over time so that's awesome i definitely love it yeah oh that's very true what is the best way for our audience to reach out to you if if they want to get in touch with you Sure. So best way is probably, you know, on Instagram at multifamily wealth is my, my name on Instagram. Um, you know, so you shoot me a DM on there or something. I try and, you know, pretty, try and be pretty responsive. Um, you can look me up on LinkedIn, um, Axel Ragnarsson. I'm sure I'll pop up probably not too many people with the same name <laughs> on LinkedIn. Um, you can email me Axel at Brickleaf Properties, which is B-R-I-C-K-L-E-A-F properties.com or, um, yeah, I mean, I think that those are the big three, and then I got a podcast too, like you guys have mentioned, uh, the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. It's you know, it's all about multifamily real estate. I really do appreciate your time, Axel. It was a pleasure getting to talk to you, and I, I hope we can do this sometime again in the future. Absolutely, I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you for listening to the Real Life Monopoly Podcast with the Donis Brothers. If you want to learn more about what we do, make sure to visit our website www.donisinvestmentgroup.com. And if you aren't already, make sure to follow us on all platforms at Donis Brothers. Let's be great today. Have a good one.